Well, welcome to Theological Quibbing Class. This semester, we are considering questions of worldview and apologetics, examining the questions and concerns of skeptics and also considering other world religions. And last week, we tackled what is called theodicy. That's the justification of God and the existence of, uh, of evil. In particular, we sought to answer the question, if God is good, why is there evil and suffering in the world? How are, we, how, how are we to think of the love and goodness of God in the midst of suffering and, uh, and evil? Today we want to take that same question, in a sense, and just kind of stretch it out a bit. Not just considering how do we relate the love of God to temporal suffering and evil, but eternal suffering. So how are we to think of the love and goodness of God in light of not only suffering in this life, but eternal suffering? Or as the title of the class indicates, if God is loving, how can he send people to hell. So let's pray, and then we will dive in together. Father, I pray that you would help us as we consider this topic, one of the uh, most difficult topics in all of uh, faith and all of Scripture. And so I pray that you would uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would uh, know and love and trust you and your goodness and your love and your sovereignty and your mercy and your grace and your justice. And so help us, we pray, because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So all right, again, our topic this morning is if God is loving, how can he send people to hell? This is what's called uh, often a defeater belief in culture. The, the assumption is that if A is true, then B can't be true. If God is loving, then hell can't be real. If hell is real, then God can't be loving. Again, it's similar to the argument last week. If God is all good and all powerful, then why is there evil in the world? The assumption is that God must not therefore be all good or all powerful. That's the same kind of argument that many would use against the existence of God or the love of God or the reality of hell because on the surface, at least, those seem mutually exclusive. So how do people answer this question? Well, some just choose to get rid of God altogether via atheism or agnosticism, reasoning that if uh, God is loving, then he can't send people to hell. And since the Bible says that uh, there is a hell, then the Bible can't be true. And God, or at least the Christian uh, version of God, doesn't exist. And that's certainly a solution. It certainly solves the problem logically. Although, as we're discussing all semester, it actually just ends up creating more problems. It solves one problem, but introduces dozens of bigger theological and philosophical problems. It's like having a, a rat infestation in your house. So you unleash a hundred cobras. You'll get rid of the rats, but at what cost? So we can't just get rid of God as an atheism or agnosticism. So some who know that they can't just get rid of God decide to just get rid of hell. Again, that does indeed logically solve the problem of hell. There's no philosophical problem of hell if there's no hell. I'm going to start doing that in the rest of my life. I don't like taxes, so I'm just going to deny the existence of taxes. Or it kind of reminds me of these kids on spring break talking about how they weren't going to let a pandemic stop their partying or the group of kids that decided to throw a pandemic party only to have one of them test positive. By the way, any humor in this lesson doesn't imply that this subject is light and trivial. In fact, it's just the opposite. There is absolutely and utterly nothing more serious and severe and depressing, in a sense, than the doctrine of hell. 
So humor, we might think, is the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down, especially in the midst of a pandemic where we might need to laugh more than ever before. So simply denying or ignoring hell is one solution. And there are at least two ways that you might do that. One is by rejecting hell completely. The other is more subtle, and that's by redefining hell. But let's talk about rejecting hell. Those who reject hell... Uh, advance some form of uh, what's called inclusivism or universalism, which is the idea that everyone is ultimately saved. Universalism exists in many different forms, from the idea that all religions are equal to the idea that Christianity wins the March uh, Madness bracket of best religions. And so eventually all people are won over to Christ. That's kind of the argument of Rob Bell in his book, Love Wins. By the way, I don't like Rob Bell and you shouldn't either. He's probably a super nice guy. He'd probably be fun to hang with. I'd probably like him as a person, but he's not a faithful teacher at all. In his first book, he said, I believe in the virgin birth, but it's not that big of a deal. And he kind of just got worse from there until eventually denying the inerrancy of Scripture and exclusivity of Christ and the meaning of hell and so forth. For Bell and others, hell is a kind of a, like a non-Roman Catholic purgatory where eventually your sin is purged and everyone is eventually reconciled to God. Even the most ardent enemy of God is eventually won over by God's loving persistence. As the title of the book indicates, love wins. So that's one way to deny hell, is to promote a form of universalism. Others have a hard time digesting the doctrine of hell. By the the way, we all have a hard time digesting uh, the, the doctrine of hell. That's kind of the point. If it were fun and breezy, then hell wouldn't really all uh, be all that hellish. But others have a hard time with hell, and they can't quite get behind universalism. And so their response instead is to redefine hell in other ways. So let's first define hell, and then we'll see how some people would choose to redefine hell in order to solve this problem, uh, this philosophical problem of, uh, of reconciling the love of God and the existence of Hell. So a definition that we've used before from Wayne Grudem is that hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. So how do some redefine this doctrine? Well, they do so by removing one word. Can you guess what word that might be? It's the word eternal. This is called annihilationism, which teaches that there is a hell, There is real conscious suffering for unbelievers, but it isn't eternal. Instead, it's temporary. Unlike in universalism, however, those who are annihilated are not eventually saved, but instead they simply cease to exist. They suffer for a while, but eventually the suffering ends. So again, hell is redefined. It isn't eternal conscious uh, punishment, but temporary. Uh, Some might be in kind of hell timeout for a year others for a decade, others for a century or whatever it might be. But eventually, everyone gets out of timeout, not by getting into heaven like universalism, but by ceasing to exist altogether. So that's annihilationism. If you aren't sure why neither annihilationism or universalism are legitimate options, go back and listen to our theological whipping uh, talks on eternal condemnation or uh, the one titled Heaven and Hell in Church History. We talked about both of those, uh, I think, last semester, sometime last year. So we can't get rid of God, and, and we can't get rid of or simply redefine hell to make it more palatable, and therein lies the difficulty. 
This question is philosophically difficult enough, but it's made even more difficult by a number of underlying assumptions that we have regarding what love entails and who God is and what God does and the underlying nature of man and so forth. So before we even begin to answer the question, uh, how can a loving God send people to hell, we need to, uh, to, to examine and expose some of our underlying presuppositions. For instance, we naturally approach this assuming that a loving God would never send people to hell. Because we assume that sending someone to hell is incompatible with the attribute of love. We haven't proven that, we've simply assumed it. Or we assumed that a, a loving God would necessarily love all people in the exact same way. Or we assume that God loves, more peop- uh, loves people more than anything else. Or we assume that people don't really deserve hell. That hell is a a bit of an overreaction. It's a cruel and unusual punishment by a cruel and unusual being. In fact, I would say that 99.9% of our discomfort with this doctrine is tethered to one or more of these uh, assumptions. Even if you have perfect theology, there is still some degree of emotional distress over the doctrine of hell. But the overwhelming majority of our discomfort is owing to a failure to believe some fundamental truth about God or ourselves. So what I want to do today is just defend three truths, three different truths. Number one, that God sends people to hell. Number two, that hell is the proper judgment against sin. And number three, that God is loving and good. So let's talk about the first one. God sends people to hell. It's kind of common to try to alleviate our sense of uneasiness with the doctrine of hell by uh, attempting to let God off the hook. In particular, we might say things like, God doesn't send anyone to hell, we send ourselves. In this way, we think that we can protect the love of God and protect the doctrine of hell, but mitigate against some form of distress of thinking that God is the one doing the sending. You might have heard something like this view advocated by C.S. Lewis, who was a, a brilliant author, a good thinker. He's not a great theologian. Regarding hell, he wrote, it's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing up which will of itself be hell until it is nipped uh, in, uh, unless it is nipped in the bud. He also said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done and those to whom God says, thy will be done. So Lewis's idea is kind of that the doors of hell are locked, but only from the inside. People reject God, and thus they choose hell. Now to be fair, there is a smidge of truth here, and it certainly has some benefits. For example, as mentioned, it doesn't deny hell. It doesn't compromise on God's existence or God's love. It also correctly recognizes that the condemned are not repentant. There's a tendency among some to think that those who are condemned to hell will eventually become contrite and repentant. Uh, They they recognize their sin. They they want to repent, but God is just this big meanie. He won't let them. He's like Lucy pulling the football away from Charlie Brown. So sinners in hell desperately, contritely want to get out, and God just mercilessly slams the door on them. So this view correctly recognizes and articulates that that's a distortion of the truth. The condemned may not want to be there in the sense that they don't want to be tortured. Hell isn't club med. They don't want to be there, but neither do they want to repent. 
In fact, I would argue that every bit of suffering just increases their seething hatred of God. So there are some benefits to this solution, but also some problems. And I think that the problems actually outweigh the benefits. For, uh, for instance, it doesn't deny hell. It doesn't compromise on God's existence or his love. But it does dilute God's love and his sovereignty by making both passive, by making both reactive. So this view suffers from many of the same problems that Zach articulated last week regarding the free will defense to theodicy. In effect, this view only works within a non-reformed view of salvation that denies the doctrine of reprobation, which is the view that from eternity past, God has determined to save some but not others. Now, that, the doctrine of reprobation, is probably, along with the doctrine of hell itself, the two most difficult doctrines in all of Scripture, so I hesitate to even bring it up here, but it does completely expose the errors of the view that God doesn't send anyone to hell, we simply send ourselves. So let me just give a couple of passages that demonstrate that it isn't merely people sending themselves to hell, but that God has an active role in doing so. Look at Matthew 13, 41 through 42, which says, The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace." In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or Revelation twenty fifteen. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the question is, who is doing the throwing? No, notice, it's not these people throwing themselves like some uh, fake WWF wrestling. The picture from Scripture is of God actively sending people to hell. So is that just? Is that fair? Let's consider that question with the second truth you need to know, which is that hell is the proper judgment against sin. Earlier we talked about our presuppositions, our assumptions. In particular, we said that many of us assume that people don't deserve hell or that hell is a bit of an overreaction. It's cruel and unusual punishment. Now, to be fair, if that is actually true, then the idea of God sending people to hell is an actual defeater belief. The doctrine of hell would be a huge intellectual hurdle and moral stain on Christianity if people didn't deserve it. But if mankind actually deserves hell, and if hell is actually an appropriate punishment, then this argument loses all of its logical force, all of its philosophical force. It still has emotional force, mind you, as we feel the weight of the doctrine of hell, but it's not logically consistent. So there's two things to confess here, two things to recognize. First, we need to understand that mankind deserves hell. Underlying quite a bit of our discomfort with the doctrine of hell is a residual resistance to the idea that man actually deserves it. Even those of us who would confess with our mouths that man is utterly depraved still struggle to really have that belief fully inform our hearts. So we have categories of people. We're kind of okay with the Hitlers and Stalins and Bin Ladens and Pol Pots and serial killers and dentists of the world going to hell. But we think most people aren't that bad. Well, there's all kinds of problems with that. We've talked about this a number of times before. For one, the Bible explicitly says we aren't good. In fact, we aren't even morally neutral. We are 
bad. We are wicked. We are evil. Romans 3, 10 through 18. As it is written, none is righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There are dozens of other passages that we could use Go back and listen to audio. Again, we've taught on total depravity and sin uh, many times before. But the general idea is that you aren't basically good. You aren't kind of good. You aren't even morally neutral. Apart from grace, you are evil. You are wicked. You are utterly and totally depraved. So that's one problem with the idea that we don't deserve hell. Another problem is that it therefore implies that we do deserve heaven or the new earth to be more precise which makes salvation a matter of something other than grace. So God sending people to hell isn't like Stalin sending innocent Russians to Siberia or Hitler sending Jews to concentration camps. No, instead, we all deserve hell. It is grace alone that saves us. So if your discomfort with hell is at all related to the assumption that man doesn't deserve it, then notice what is happening. You are willing to make a trade. You are willing to excuse the inherent evil of man by doing what? By accusing God himself of evil. One of those things has to be true. Either man truly is evil and deserves hell, or God is evil for sending people there. So we certainly deserve punishment. But the question is, is hell, is eternal conscious punishment a fitting penalty, or is it cruel and unusual? Now notice what's happening as we answer this question. Now we're not just talking about the attribute of the love of God, but we're also questioning the justice and righteousness of God. We've now moved the conversation. We aren't just asking if God is loving, but if he's good and he's wise and he's just. It's important that we recognize that subtle shift in the discussion. And this is really where annihilationism makes its logical stand. How can a finite sin receive an infinite punishment? How can God punish someone for eternity when they only sinned for a non-eternal life? We all agree that sin should be punished, but the idea of eternal conscious suffering seems a bit harsh. So is it? Let me give you a few thoughts First, I wouldn't necessarily agree that their sin is just temporal. Instead, it seems from Scripture that the condemned continue in rebellion unto eternity. Imagine locking someone up for murder. Let's call him O.J. In 25 years, this fictional O.J. is up for parole, and his lawyer argues that, his, uh, that he's been completely rehabil- rehabilitated. But then the warden comes in, and he speaks up, 
And he says, well, hang on for a second. You should know that while in prison, O.J. shivved at least one prisoner every single year. Well, that's like what happens in hell. Those condemned want out, but they don't want righteousness. They don't want God. Even their desire to get out is full of seething hatred toward their creator. So in a sense, their sin is actually eternal. But let's assume for a second that isn't the case, and their sin is only temporal, only in this life. Would eternal punishment therefore be just? I would say yes. Why? Because the severity of the punishment isn't just related to the longevity of the crime, but also the severity of the crime. We all naturally recognize this. Let me give you a couple of examples. Which is worse, to steal one penny from your neighbor every single day for their entire life, or to murder your entire neighbor's family in a fit of rage? In one instance, you have decades of sinful acts. In the other, you have a few minutes. But we all know that the second act is infinitely worse. Or imagine I throw a shoe at you. Who throws a shoe, honestly? But imagine I do. What's the result? Well, if you follow the Sermon on the Mount, you just let me throw another. But beyond that, that's probably it. But what happens if you throw a shoe at President George Bush? Well, the guy who did that in 2008 was sentenced to three years in prison. Why? Because the greater the dignity of the victim, the greater the severity of the offense. And there is no greater dignity than that possessed by God. So let me ask you this question. What punishment could ever suffice for an infinite offense against an infinitely good and holy God? Only an eternal punishment suffices. So when we consider the doctrine of hell, we have two options. First, we can say, If hell is that horrific, then sin must be at least that horrific. How egregious and serious and dreadful and treasonous must my sin actually be in order to deserve and demand such punishment? That's one option. Or we can look at the severity of sin and say, how unkind and harsh and cruel must God be to inflict such undeserved punishment. And notice, notice that should we choose this second route, we have implicitly demonstrated the justice of hell. How so? By belittling the glory of God. When we say that we don't deserve hell, We thus imply our sin isn't that bad, which means that God isn't that glorious. If you don't deserve hell, then God doesn't deserve glory. And according to to Romans 1, denying the glory of God is what got us into this whole mess in the first place. So as Romans 2 says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Notice, God's wrath and judgment are righteous. Therefore, as J.I. Packer says, it, really is, it, it is really a mercy to mankind that God in Scripture is so explicit about hell. In other words, it would be terribly cruel for God to not reveal the utter horror of hell and thus implore us to repent So rather than shying away from the depiction of hell in Scripture, we should instead consider it. We should shudder in horror at the thought and bless God that He has rescued 
his children from what we too deserve. So not only does God send people to hell, but hell is the fitting and just punishment for sin. Last point, God is loving and good. This is where we get to the real emotional meat of the argument. How can God be thought of as loving and good in light of the existence of eternal conscious suffering? Not only for the Jack the Rippers of the world, but for our neighbors, for our family members, for our friends. So I just want to bring up a few points that need to be considered that will help us in this. What do we need to know about the love of God? The first thing we need to know is that we always have to define biblical terms in biblical ways. Why do I say this here? Because we can't critique the love of God when we don't know what love entails. It's like when someone says, I literally just died. You didn't literally just die or you couldn't say that. Or when someone says that something is ironic, when it isn't ironic, like in that Alanis Morissette song. In other words, we can't have the debate about the love of God unless we agree on what love actually looks like. If by love you mean what culture tends to mean, utter toleration, no consequences, just niceness and candy and lollipops, then yeah, God is not loving, but only because you've now changed the meaning of the word. But by that logic, we couldn't really say anything of God. God is not sovereign. If by sovereign I mean that he does whatever Jeff wants, God is not good. If by good I mean bad, God is not God. If, I, if by God I mean Carl. It does no good to say that hell exists if we think that hell is super fun. Likewise, it does no good to say that God is loving without knowing what that actually means. Well, thankfully, not only does the Bible tell us that God is loving, but it describes what loving actually means. And throughout the Bible, we see that God's love and his wrath are not opposed. When we say that God is loving, we do not mean candy canes and heart sprinkles. It doesn't even mean that for us in regards to our love. Your love for your child doesn't imply that you simply let them do whatever he or she desires. Because I love my kids, I make them do certain things and prohibit them from doing others and attach punishments. So we can't approach the Bible with our own assumptions and presuppositions about what love is and then assess God by our own innate standard. We have to go to Scripture to have our own views corrected and reform. So let me give you a few biblical thoughts on love that help us to understand why the existence of hell is not incompatible with the idea of love. The first is the most difficult and controversial, and yet I think it's the most helpful. By the way, this is the second time that I've mentioned that something which is controversial is actually the best answer to a question. For some reason, Christians today tend to not want to do the hard work of really giving the best answers. We're satisfied with platitudes and cliches. We're pragmatists. We default towards uh, what tends to work rather than what is most faithful and because we don't want to be offensive. Why not? Because we assume that being offensive isn't what? Loving. So you can see how even in our responses to this question, we run into the very problem we're trying to solve. We have a pre-existing idea of love that then colors not only the problem, but our responses to the problem. So the first correction of our love, uh, of our view of the love of God is this. God's love, contrary to what we might think naturally, innately, God's love is actually discriminatory. God's love is actually much more particular 
than we think. Here's what I mean by that. Again, this is super controversial, but God does not love everyone in the same way. So let me prove that to you and then show you why this is actually good news. First, the proof. In a really helpful little booklet called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, D.A. Carson uh, distinguishes between different ways that we can speak of God's love. For instance, he talks of inner Trinitarian love. Uh, The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and so forth. That's one type of love. There's also God's common love for all of humanity. This typically overlaps with what is called common grace. So believers and unbelievers alike experience the joys of marriage and children and food and drink and rain and the sunrise and so forth. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 44 through 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So there's a sense in which we can rightly say that God loves everyone. But does he love everyone in the same way? The biblical answer to that is no. There is a distinct love which God has for the elect. In fact, it is that love which is the very foundation of their election, which is why Ephesians 1 says, in love he predestined us. Which implies that those who were not elected were not recipients of that kind of love. Now again, this is super difficult, but ignoring the hard things in Scripture is not virtue. Instead, we should seek to know all that God has revealed to us. So this distinct love is why Romans 9 says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans 9, 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. By the way, if that seems unfair... If that seems unjust, then you should keep reading. We talked about this when we preached through Romans 9 a couple of years ago. God is justified in loving Jacob and hating Esau because God is the most glorious and free being in existence and the very standard of good isn't what seems right to us, but whatever is right and good as defined by the standard of God's glory. So whatever it means that God hates Esau, it has to mean that in some sense, God's love for Jacob is different, and that's the point I'm trying to make here. God doesn't love every single person in the same way. He loves all people in some sense, but he has a deeper and stronger love for the elect. Now let me tell you why this is not a doctrine to avoid, but one that we should cling to. In other words, even if you struggle to believe this is true, you should want it to be true, and you should want to treasure it. Let me do so by asking you a question. Do you want God to love you in the same way that he loved Judas Iscariot? In other words, do you want God to merely love you enough to let you reject him? That's sometimes held up as the highest definition of love. God loves you so much to give you free will to gladly reject or receive him. That sounds good from our cultural perspective, but the actual result, theologically, is horrifying. If that's what we mean by God's love, I'm damned and you are too. I don't want a love that merely gives me a choice. I want a love that protects me from myself, that prevents me from falling away, that keeps me and sustains me. Let me give you an example of this so you can feel the emotional weight of this argument. 
I'm going to use the example of suicide not to make light of it, but because many of you know my life has been profoundly impacted by the suicide deaths of actually multiple friends in my life. So imagine you come home one day and your teenage boy is holding a gun to his head. Now you desperately love your son. You would do anything for him. So do you simply say, son, I love you enough to respect your wishes. I hope you will not do this heinous act, but my love for you demands that I stand back and recuse myself. Is that what you say? Of course not. If you have an opportunity, you jump across the bed, you tackle your son, you break his arm if you have to in order to wrestle the gun away. And that's the kind of love we need from God. The kind that doesn't sit back and say, I love you so much that I'll allow you to destroy yourself, but rather I have loved you before the foundation of the world and I love you so much that I'll protect you from yourself. We want the kind of love, we need the kind of love that says neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So if you struggle with the idea of God loving some people differently than he loves others, welcome to the club. Christians have wrestled with that doctrine for millennia. And yet let us not deny it, lest we deny ourselves our only real security and assurance and hope. That's the first thing we need to know about the love of God. The next thing about God's love we need to know, and that is that an emphasis on the love of God must not be used to de-emphasize His holiness or His justice. If I were to ask the average Christian to list the attributes of God, what would they mention God is merciful, God is gracious, God is loving, God is kind. I would imagine that I would get a lot less responses mentioning God is just, God is righteous, God is holy. Why is that? Because we tend to play one attribute off another. We think that wrath and love are like oil and water, that justice and grace are incompatible, that holiness and mercy are conflicting. So we choose the attributes that make us feel better like a kid asking their mom if they can do something because dad said no. But God's attributes are not like mom and dad disagreeing. God is simple. We've talked about that before. That doesn't mean that God is dumb or uneducated. It means that all of God's attributes exist to the highest level at once. His love and wrath are not at odds. He's not like Mr. Rogers changing from a wrath jacket to a love sweater, from mercy shoes to justice slippers. So when we ask the question, how can a loving God condemn sinners, we also need to remember that the question, how can a holy God save sinners, is just as big a problem. But the Bible doesn't play its attributes off of each other. Consider Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation? Notice that the text has no trouble calling God merciful and gracious and loving. He forgives sin and iniquity and transgression, but also 
will by no means clear the guilty. Instead, he punishes it. In fact, I think if you really understand the attributes of holiness and love and wrath and justice and mercy and grace, you will understand that hell not only doesn't contradict or diminish the love of God, but instead emphasizes it. So let me close with this thought experiment. Imagine for a second that we conclude that the doctrine of hell is simply incompatible with God's love. We play God's love against His holiness and justice. We're willing to compromise on His holiness or justice in order to exalt the love of God. So if God isn't really as holy as Scripture says He is, then what the cross actually accomplishes is less impressive because sin isn't really that bad. It's not really that worthy of punishment. But if what the cross accomplishes is less impressive, then God's love poured out on the cross is less impressive for paying that cost. So now in the span of a few seconds, we've diluted the holiness of God to preserve the love of God, only to find that the love of God is diluted as well. In other words, those who would deny or redefine the doctrine of hell in order to protect the love of God actually end up distorting the very attribute they are attempting to preserve. This is true of all the attributes of God. The more you diminish one, the more you diminish others because they uh, are not made to be divorced from each other. God is perfect in all his perfections, all of his attributes. He is not like us. There are things that I'm good at and I would want you to emulate. There are other things that I'm not proud of. There are things that I might prefer to hide about myself from all but my best friends. I'm sure there's even subtle things that I try to hide from my best friends, but God is not like that. God's wrath is not something to be embarrassed by. It is beautiful and right and good. God's justice is not something to be ashamed of. It is beautiful and right and good. Likewise with his holiness and all of his other attributes. So hell is not ultimately incompatible with the love of God any more than wrath is incompatible with love or holiness with grace. How can a loving God send people to hell? That's a really difficult question to answer. But by understanding all of the attributes of God, including but not limited to his love, and by understanding the nature of sin, we can begin to articulate a response which is logically consistent, even if it's still emotionally difficult. Which means that the more fully we understand the nature and character of God and the horrors of sin, the more easily we can begin to answer the question. Whereas the more that we cling to caricatures of what we think love must entail, and as long as we diminish the essential nature of sin, we excuse ourselves, the the answer to the question will always remain out of our reach. So if you really want to understand the necessity of hell, don't just read all the passages about hell. Don't just read books about hell. Don't just study hell, but instead study sin And more than that, study the nature and character of God. Let's pray. Father, I confess that uh, this is a weighty and difficult doctrine. But at the same time, I confess that your son talked about hell more than anyone else. And so we're unfaithful if we deny it or redefine it or distort it. And so I pray that you would help us, Lord, to not only confess that it's true, but also to see why it's right and good, and not to be embarrassed by it, because in doing so, we imply that we are embarrassed by you, but to exalt and exult in all of your perfections, all of your glory, 
So I pray that you would soften our hearts, that we might trust you and trust your word and see that you are loving even in this doctrine. We pray these things because we know that you're good and you do good. And so we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.